When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Welcome to the Psychology Podcast, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. I'm Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman. And in each episode, I have a conversation with a guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening and enjoy the podcast. Just a quick note that today's episode is going to be a rerun. The next season of the Psychology Podcast will begin later this year. I haven't taken any break in five years of doing this podcast, so I thought it was about time to take a step back and think about how I can make this a better experience for you all. Until then, enjoy these episodes from our archives. Thanks so much for making time. I know you're extremely busy. Um, oh, my, my pleasure. Completely. We have a mutual friend, Josh Whiteskin, who I've known for quite a long time, who always talks ah, about oh, awesome. <laughs> I was just texting with him about 15 minutes ago. Oh my gosh. Well, tell him you're talking to Scott uh, Kaufman. I will. I will. That's very funny. Yeah, he's a great guy. Yeah. So you probably get like lots of the same kinds of questions. So I thought I'd, you know, try to take this to another higher level because in some ways we've had different, um, we've had like parallel paths. So I've studied the science of high performance, the science of greatness, all this stuff, uh, my entire career. And you've You've been in the trenches, right? You've really been doing this um, firsthand. Um, my, uh, I was the last research assistant of Herb Simon as an undergraduate, and uh, mentor. Nice. I was mentored by Randy Palish, and I noticed that both of these individuals are people that um, that you talk about in in your own work. Right? Yeah, yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. I've uh, the uh, Randy Palish just to make sure I'm getting it right. That's the last lecture, yeah. right? I mean, he's obviously done more than that. So I have his. We can talk about that, but I have his book face out in my living room so i see it every day that is so cool yeah i took yeah. his uh, usability engineering uh, usability design course at carnegie mellon i know kidding very cool really great guy and i learned a lot from him yeah so i've been i've been studying um and trying to debunk this um this ten thousand hours rule 
for quite some time in, in a kind of a similar way you have. And I, I just want to point out how it's different from how others are trying to debunk it. So other people in my field have been sure. trying to debunk the 10,000 hour rule by saying, well, look, he, uh, Erickson really um, demotes the value of talent. So, you know, and that they're missing that part of the picture. And I've been arguing, well, no, that's not that's not quite the point there. The point is you can really go up that learning curve really fast, and it's not completely mm -hmm. just because of talent. It's because of all these other factors of like really knowing how to learn, knowing how you know the, the role of inspiration. I talk about a lot the role of um, uh, of active learning strategies and things of that mm -hmm. nature. And so I read your stuff, and I see a lot of uh, commonalities in the sense that that you're saying like, look, we can really uh, we can cut like you know. Uh, eight tenth of the time, you know, to learn some of this stuff. And it's not just because the person is cutting eight tenth, it's just because they're more talented than someone else. So I wanted to I wanted to directly explicitly point that out, how I think like, you know, our perspectives kind of converge and are, are actually different from the other the ten thousand hour myth mythbusters, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah. So um I'd love to hear some of your own personal experiences, like what you think are maybe some of the main principles that can help uh, rapidly accelerate up the learning curve. Um uh, despite the, you know, the genes that you're born with. Yeah. Uh, or in spite of the genes you're born with in, yeah. in a lot of cases. So I, I think that there are a number of factors and they have a lot of interplay. I mean, as you know, that there's the, the inspiration, the drive, uh, intrinsic motivation or reward or punishment, extrinsic motivation, punishment or reward. Uh, but there, there are a handful of things that I, tend to highlight when I'm trying to explain to people why it's possible to say, as I did in my 30s, go from not knowing how to swim, I couldn't swim one lap, to swimming, say, 40 laps in a, a session within a week to 10 days. And it came down to looking at the assumptions in a given field, the so-called best practices, and then for each of them asking, what if I had to eliminate this? Or what if I did the opposite? So, for instance... <clears throat> A lot of people think of freestyle swimming as I did, which is swimming on top of the water. You kick really hard and you pull to propel yourself through the water. The method that ended up solving all of my problems was, is called total immersion. And it's, it flips all of that on its head and reexamines the basic sort of flawed uh, assumptions that underlie most swimming instruction. Uh, so they, don't, they have you kick as little as possible because it's an energy drain. It's an energy sink. And uh, they have you focus on alternating from your right side to your left. So you're not swimming on your stomach or chest, as a lot of people think. You're alternating almost as a, as a boat or a vessel from uh, extended fuselage right to extended fuselage left. Very similar to rock climbing in some ways. And everything is focused on uh, effort minimization. And so they, they will come in and they'll say, all right, if you feel like you're spending a lot of effort, you're getting a good workout, you're doing it incorrectly. And it was just such an incredible juxtaposition with everything I'd been shown, including from some very, very high-level performers. And so that, that then brings the second point, which is uh, the best performers are not always the best teachers. Uh, and this is particularly true if they've been doing something for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. In uh, some cases, because the in, in the same way that if you or I, or I shouldn't speak for you, but if you take a lot of people listening to this podcast, they're native English speakers. If you had them try to take the test of English as a foreign language, yeah. they would they might flunk it because if you ask them, you know, what's the difference between anything and something? Quick, quick, quick! Like their <laughs> their minds will freeze. They've never actually had to consciously think about what they've been doing. Oh yeah, I totally life. feel that. 
yeah. yeah. And, uh, and similarly, you want to look for a teacher or someone you can emulate. They don't have to be a teacher per se. Someone who has, had, who has made the most progress in a period of, say, six months or 12 months. And uh, so, for instance, if you're trying to learn to dance, there's a woman who recorded her dance improvement over a year in a one or two minute trailer. And you could try to reach out to someone like that. Or uh, there was a, I think it was a, a gent, young guy from the UK who wanted to try to become one of the top uh, table tennis, ping pong players uh, in the UK in the span of a year. And he recorded the entire process. So who's going to have more in terms of insight on tight turnarounds? Someone who's done that or someone who has been sort of following the textbook for 20 years. And I would argue the former. So seeking those types of people out. Uh, which is very, very easy because you can spend a little bit of time on Google and just search for, you know, controversial uh, such and such player, controversial such and such coach. And that will give you the leads that will lead to uh, all sorts of other, uh, all sorts of other gold mines. And uh, I think that also there's a, there's a misunderstanding from a lot of people who say harp on the 10,000 hour rule using it as an excuse not even to try. And that is, they view learning or skill acquisition as a linear process. Mm. And uh, so if you have an X and Y axis, it's sort of cutting it right down the middle at a 45 degree angle. And I don't think of it that way. And I think a lot, most people in the, in the sciences don't. I mean, uh, and this applies to options trading and other things too, but you have basically, uh, let's just say, and correct me if I'm talking on my ass here, but a sigmoid function, right? So it looks like an <laughs> S that's been grabbed by the ends and, and extended a bit. So you have this, this slow, very gradual, ascent, then this hockey stick, which shoots up into the sky, and then a point of diminishing returns, uh, where, where it's, it's very slow. And uh, that's say that that very slow point is where I think you, you get, uh, that's where a lot of, of, of intelligent grunt work is involved. When you're trying to go from, say, uh, the, the, the number five best cellist in such and such symphony mm -hmm. to the first seat. Okay, that's a, that's a slog right there. I mean, you have to put in a ton of time for each incremental gain. Whereas my goal for people is to just say, look, it's commonly said you have to spend a lifetime learning a language. That's complete BS. I mean, you can become what most people would consider conversationally fluent in almost any language, in my opinion, in uh, six months, and absolutely, and I used to consider myself bad at languages, and I've just replicated that too many times for myself and for other people to think otherwise. You think the anyone? Trick can? You think is, anyone? Well, anyone is a big word. I would say the vast majority of people. Okay. Uh, and uh, there are two things I'd say to that. So my job is to show people how to chop off that first point uh, part of the sigmoid curve yeah. or to get to that hockey stick as quickly as possible. Now, when they hit that hockey stick, are they going to be the best in the world? No, they're going to be functionally fluent. Uh, and you can get, though, I think, to top 5% in the general population in almost any skill in 6 to 12 months. I've just seen too many examples. And um, there, there are two things I'd say to that. Number one is, is specific to language learning, uh, based on everything I've seen and research that I've read, I think adults can learn languages far faster than children. Mm -hmm. The reason that they typically don't is because they have mortgages and jobs and obligations mm -hmm. where, and a choice. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's an option yeah. whether they choose to study or not. And if you take a kid and throw them into a kindergarten in a different language, what choice do they have? A, 
and B, they have no other obligations. So uh, it's it's more a function of logistics than mental capacity. That's number one. And Hakata has done some very interesting research here. There's a book called In Other Words, which is a little out, a little old. But, uh, I think uh, everything I've seen in working with a lot of tech startups would re- would uh, reinforce this. Yeah. Um, sorry, I'm getting on my soapbox here because I get all a- amped up. The second thing oh, this is, great. is yeah, yeah the, the the second thing is that it's very dangerous to focus on averages and exclude the outliers when it comes to examining peak performance. And so they'll say, well, on average, people in the top 5% sleep X number of hours per night and do this and do this. But the averages can be very misleading. And in the way that, uh, you know, if, if Bill Gates walks into a bar, the average net worth is, you know, $50 million or something like that. Uh, and I remember reading a story by, or was it an, it's an anecdote, uh, about Warren Buffett, and he was being sort of harangued by a bunch of um, efficient market theorists who say, like, the market's incorporated all the information that's available, therefore, blah, blah, blah. And he was saying, well, and, and they would argue, they're like, well, look, Mr. Buffett, we don't believe in stock picking. And if you had, you know, 10,000 orangutans flipping quarters, eventually, just by sheer chance and probability, you would have 10 who seem to be master coin flippers to get heads all the time and they would go off and write books about how to flip coins and make tons of money doing that and uh, that was intended to kill Buffett's argument he said well fine that's true he said but if there's one small place in Omaha that seems to manufacture these mm-hmm. these magical coin flipping orangutans over and over and over again if you find a concentration in a, in a peculiar fashion you should research that and um, you can find these kind of mutant factories for all sorts of skills I mean, whether it's chess, whether it's jujitsu, uh, like the uh, the school that's co-owned by a mutual friend of ours, Josh Waitskin with Marcelo Garcia, 10-time world champion. You can find these factories. Tennis, uh, they're, they're all out there. You just have to track them down. Yeah, so I saw an interview you did a while ago, and you, you mentioned that you're really interested in the education space, and then you made a call. You said, if anyone you know, I want to talk to more educators. I want to be in this world. If I can help you at all with that, that world, that's the world I inhabit. You know, I'm more than happy to help you. Um, cause I, you know, there's so many deep implications for what you're doing for uh, curriculum and teacher training. And I wonder if you uh, entered that space at all. And if you ever thought about actually creating like a, you know, a, some sort of like teacher training curriculum that really can help students, um, learn better and enjoy learning. I, uh, First of all, thank you. I appreciate the offer. Uh, yeah. Secondly, I have looked very deeply, and there are a few observations that I've made and a few experiments and initiatives that I've, I've focused on. So what I realized early on is that I am good at curriculum. I am bad at politics. And um, yeah. fixing certain aspects of public education in the United States are as much a political Absolutely. issue, if not more a political issue, and have a lot to do with paychecks and maintaining the status quo in a lot of ways than it has to do with improving education for for kids or even adults in the U.S. Now, that having been said, what I decided to do living in Silicon Valley as I do and having a lot of uh, involvement with tech startups, I uh, decided to focus on trying to use my platform as an Archimedes lever for uh, a couple of startups that I think are developing solutions that are highly scalable. So for instance, uh, there's one called Duolingo. I was one of the first investors in Duolingo. Duolingo offers free language learning uh, tools, and they're very effective. And it was co-created 
by or co-founded by Luis von Ahn out of Carnegie Mellon, who was a computer science professor and was the creator of uh, reCAPTCHA. So the capture more intelligent CAPTCHA fields where you have two fields and you, everyone's seen these where it's like, fill this out to prove you're not a robot. And uh, the first one they know the answer to. So it's like X, Y, B, you know, hashtag or whatever. And you fill that out. The next one is actually taken out of a book that has been hard to transcribe, that a machine can't read. And uh, so it was used for transcribing books. So it had this altruistic purpose, which is very cool. And um, that it would use, obviously, it would look at the responses to, say, a thousand people who saw the same image, and you would get the right answer. So Duolingo, at this point, uh, is, is educating more people uh, helping them learn foreign languages for free than the entire U.S. public school system, uh-huh. uh, or the K, at least the K through 12. So it's it's been a very good investment of of time and energy. So it's it's a lateral approach. Uh, the second is uh, called No Red Ink, which is very interesting uh, that people should check out. And it's it's flown under the radar, but it's intended to help teachers and teacher. Well, number one, students to learn English and English grammar. And, uh, and writing more effectively, which is notoriously difficult to teach and very time-consuming to correct. Uh, and uh, it's, it's a very sleek, uh, elegant solution to a long-standing problem. And they're, they're, just, they're correcting you know, millions and millions and millions of sentences at a time now. Uh, and that has some huge implications for other areas of education and expediting the entire process, helping to automatically create content that appeals to the interests of the students. You know, they would select, I'm interested in Justin Bieber, the Lakers, this, this, and this. And it would help generate content or find content that they're interested in. And uh, and uh, they that's what they write about, you know, as opposed to, you know, Mary chases Bob with the dog or some something like that. So uh, I have mostly focused on technology as an exponentially – uh, growing and developing tool for really scaling things effectively. At some point, I'll probably tackle some of the political issues, but quite frankly, that's not my that's not my superpower. I'm too impatient and undiplomatic. I, I think, but you're not impatient. So, you're interesting. You're an interesting combination of traits in one human. So, <laughs> um, so thank you. Yeah. So you're like. I mean, I write about this. I write. I call creative people messy minds. I say creative people have messy minds because they have this ability to inhabit seemingly contradictory traits in one uh, in one thing. And they're actually really creative people are really good at quickly switching between um, different personality dimensions, right? Um, so you're, you said you're impatient, but you're, you're, you're impatient in the sense that in, in the, you're existentially impatient. So this is what I'm seeing is that you're existentially impatient. Doesn't, I wouldn't call you impatient. I would call you existentially impatient. You realize you have one life and you want to maximize this life that you live in. And you're, you're probably maximizing this life more than, uh, probably anyone on this planet right now. Um, trying, I'm yeah, trying, you know, one yeah. day at a time. But you're, but at the same time, I mean, you do have um, great reflection, and in the sense that you really follow feedback, so you really can take feedback quickly and use that to um, do it. And but I don't see, I don't think like everyone has the same. Um, uh, not everyone's there yet where they're able to really learn from feedback as well. What do you think are some of the obstacles or blocks, maybe mindset blocks that are stopping people um, from acquiring feedback so well and then moving forward in their skill development? Is that a fair question? That's very good. Yeah. yeah no. Question. I think there are, of course, different types of, of feedback. So there's uh, self-generated feedback where 
uh, for instance, you record workouts or blood glucose measurements or whatnot, and you start to spot trends mm -hmm. and associations and you can go, oh my God, I didn't realize as I realized a few days ago, uh, you know, I was, I've, I've been eating uh, fewer than 30 grams of carbs per day for a while to measure ketone concentration in the blood and whatnot. But, uh, if you have, for me personally, my carbohydrate tolerance is such that if I consume say a kombucha that has eight grams of carbohydrates, even once in two or three days, it will, it will screw up my metabolic objectives for like three or four days, right? The only way I figure that out though, is by tracking and writing things down. So the first thing would be know thyself. And the way you do that is by uh, determining what measurables you're going to follow. Right. So if you're trying to learn to surf, you're trying to learn to swim, like what are the numbers that you're tracking? And you can make these up, but you can also borrow measurements. So in swimming, I didn't have any measurement uh, until total gen. And, uh, you know, I am a, uh, have this new TV show, the Tim Ferriss Experiment. We did an entire episode on swimming. And since I already had learned how to swim, we took someone who couldn't even really put her head underwater and tried to make her into a open ocean, long distance swimmer freestyle in three or four days, which was, uh, uh -huh. which was very uh, intense. But, uh, the, the measurement there that, that you use is strokes per lap. And that tells you how efficient you are. Uh -huh. So you try to go from say 30 strokes per lap down to 20, down to 15. And, uh, it's a, it's a, it's an indicator of, energy conservation and efficiency. Uh, so similarly, you know, you, you could, you could find these measurables and choose objectives that way. Um, so that's tracking in terms of, uh, accepting feedback from other people. You need to find teachers who can give you the why and not just the how. So it's, it's very typical. For instance, I refused to learn the alphabet until first grade and I was fed soap by my kindergarten teacher, which I was not happy about. My mom was even less happy about uh, because she was like, learn the damn alphabet because I tell you so. And that didn't work for me. So I dug in my heels and I resisted. And I think a lot of people have had this kind of experience with teachers or coaches in positions of authority where you're like, well, wait a second. Like, no, I want to understand why. And uh, you're a seven-year-old talking to a 40-year-old and they want to punch you in the face and they don't give you anything. Uh, so it's important to find people who are willing to sit down and explain the why. Uh, so you know, Josh Waitzkin, um, and for those who don't know his name, the inspiration for searching for Bobby Fischer, uh, the book and the movie considered a chess prodigy. So in, um, in the TV episode where I was combining learning chess and jujitsu in the same week, which uh, turned out to be a lot to bite off yeah. um, and very uh, injury uh, rich for the, <laughs> for the jujitsu, uh, Josh would say he would explain why he's teaching chess in reverse, right? So instead of starting with openers, like almost everyone does, he's starting with king and pawn versus king to teach deep principles. And he would say, and Josh has said this, but he'd be like, look, we're creating smaller circles. What I mean by that is we're taking the micro, something very small that you can grasp, right? Not too many pieces. We're looking at king and pawn versus king to teach you deep, powerful principles right. like opposition and, uh, and so on. So uh, Josh is great at explaining the why, and then you can bear almost any how. If you can bear his training regimen. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Well, especially the jujitsu. I mean, uh, you have to have a, a certain degree of choke tolerance for that. But yeah. uh, the, 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 I think there's the why. And then, yeah. but, but feedback for me is really 
uh, you know, Peter Drucker, the, the management theorist, very famous business mind and writer said, what gets measured gets managed. And I think that's true. So until you start measuring, uh, and it can almost be arbitrary, uh, it will affect your behavior. And I remember there was a study done, you might be familiar with the study, I'm blanking on, on uh, <clears throat> the researchers, but they were, they were looking at whether turning the lights up or down uh, in offices increased work productivity. And what they found was whatever, any change they made improved productivity because people knew they were being monitored. It's <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. called uh, the Hawthorne effect. You can, yeah, there we go. Okay, so the Hawthorne effect. Good. I can, uh, thank you. I needed a label. So, so, so it's very similar. If I tell someone, look, I'm going to give you a bottle of pills and they're called placebo magic yeah. and they're full of, you know, whatever, sawdust. I'm not suggesting people eat sawdust, obviously, but it's inert. And I say, you're going to take one of these before every meal. Chances are they'll probably lose weight because they're just going to be forced as a with a pattern interrupt to become more conscious of what they do. And that's why um, if you want to lose weight and you're like, ah, I don't want to try a diet, just take a picture of every meal you have and send it to your fittest friend. Yes. <laughs> and uh, and uh, Taylor, you know, it's like, hey, you're getting yeah. you're getting things from me now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the flash diet, so to speak, works really well. It's a great idea. Um, you know, I think about positive psychology, and a major tenet of positive psychology is not, it, you know, achievement is one part of the a pillar. You know, of the PERMA model, you also have positive experience, positive emotions, and relationships. Positive relationships are important. Engagement and meaning in life, all these things are important. And so you you hinted that when you taught when you have talked about success as not just being achievement, but also appreciation. Am I right? You yeah. About that? Yeah. That's and, you, right. and so I, I think it dovetails really nicely with um, some of the principles of positive psychology. I think to live. Uh, a life of well-being, not just hedonistic well-being, which is, but really a deeper sense of well-being. There needs to be more yeah. than just achievement. So I'd love to, I'd love to riff oh. that a bit. Yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. And I think that, uh, I think that for particularly Type A personalities, they like to pat themselves on the back for achievement. But that's that's almost hardwired. That's your default. I think that's the easy part. And. Uh, the hard part that I've tried to focus on increasingly, because it is not my natural instinct or uh, sort of reflex, is to pause and appreciate what you've accomplished or what you've done or the things you have in your life, the, the health of your friends, family, etc., in a very conscious way. Because uh, achievement without appreciation, on a personal level at least, is is pretty close to meaningless. And I know... Uh, money does not fix that uh, because it's it's too high up Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Right, right, right. <laughs> money money can only really check off the boxes at the lower end. That's right. And I I know people in, in NSF who have hundreds of millions of dollars who are miserable. And uh, I think partially the drive that allowed them to make that much money is is something that prevents them from living in the present the present state. They're constantly planning for the next big thing, the next big thing, the next big thing. And uh, they always feel like they're losing. Yeah, this is part of the human condition. I mean, whether it's uh, Man's Search for Meaning and Viktor Frankl yeah, or yeah. looking at uh, a lot of the tech icons of today, uh, the challenges that people face are very similar. And um, so I, I, have, I have the habit of using a... It's called the five-minute journal, but it's effectively a, uh, a journal with a, a component that is 
listing things you are grateful for. And it sounds perhaps very self helpy That's a positive cliche, psychology thing. There, there's no, it is. Yeah. It, uh, no, there's, there's, there's a lot of data to support this practice in terms of self-reported well-being. Yeah. And uh, I find that really, I mean, three minutes in the morning and three minutes at night is enough to have a, a, a not just a non-trivial, but I mean, a significant impact on my quality of life and sense of well-being uh, and feeling of being unrushed, which is kind of ultimate luxury in my mind. And uh, it's also a reason why I read a lot of Stoic philosophy. And, yeah. um, you know, I, I really feel like it's a good operating system for living in high stress environments while keeping things in perspective and not overly emotionally responding to things like a reactive animal. Now, do I always get that right? No, uh, not at all. I mean, I'm a bull in a china shop, I think, most of the time. So we all make mistakes, but hopefully each day uh, a little bit fewer. Um, how do you define appreciation? Are you talking about – there's all sorts of kinds of appreciation. You can appreciate um, others, other people, right? You can appreciate – you know, the fa there's just lots of different shades of appreciation. What do, what do you mean when you use the word? When I use the word – I'm so glad you asked because I'm so nitpicky with – with definitions. So this, this is a, 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 to be perfectly frank, I think I use it a lot without defining it very clearly. So let me think about the context in which I use it. Success is another really dangerous word. That's really, and happiness. Those yeah. are also really, Let's not use the S really, word. Really squirrely. Or the H yeah. word. Um, use the W word. Well, so, yeah. Yeah. So for, for appreciation, I think for me, it is, it is simply recognition, recognizing the value of what you have. And um, that, that would be my attempt, my stab at a definition. But I mean, when I write things down, it's literally that. And when I write these things down, I actually got this advice from, from Tony Robbins, who I, I, I that guy is a, he's an impressive specimen. I got to say, yeah, yeah. There, there's a lot of, that guy is a machine. Powerhouse. Um, so yeah. yeah, when he, when he puts together these lists for himself, he gave me a great piece of advice, which was, you know, you can write down the big things, so to speak, which are, you know, the, I'm, I'm grateful for the health of my mom and dad, right? I'm grateful for fill in the blank. But he said, I always put in one thing that is very fleeting and seemingly small, like the two clouds I'm looking at past the eucalyptus trees outside my window that I'm looking at right now. And I was like, oh, that's smart. That's really smart to train yourself to be more observant of tiny details. Because the small things are the big things. And if you don't notice the small things, uh, I think that, that uh, you can have a feeling of being lost, even if you're killing it, even if you're you know, slaying dragons and hitting home runs. So yeah. that's, uh, so that's, why that's how I try to think about it. Mindfulness is obviously can be helpful for that, right? Huge, huge. And if, you, and if you know, meditation is a dirty word to you, which it was for, for me for a very long time, then uh, start with, with guided meditations. You could use an app like Headspace or Calm, or you could go to samharris.org. Yeah. You know, make it easy. I was you know, rig the game so you can win in the beginning. Yeah, I'm going to definitely uh, promote your show, which is next week. Am I right? It's coming out next week. Yeah, yeah it launches on uh, the 28th, on um, the Tuesday. So that's kind of the, the big day. Great. We'll get this episode out immediately. Um, I'm very um, respectful of your time. Uh, Taylor just wants to ask you one question. Um, he's a big, sure. fan of, fan, big fan of yours. This is my executive producer, Taylor Christ. Huge fan. So good to talk to you, Tim. So cool. Yeah, you too. Right on, man. So something I love so much about your writing is how it focuses people in on what it means to live a good life. You know, I think sitting down with your books uh, gets people to reflect on their values, on their goals, on their priorities, and just how to live a more philosophically satisfying existence. 
and uh, it's kind of appropriate we were just talking about this, really. Um, Tim, I'm wondering just what would it mean for, for you, for Tim Ferriss to have lived a good life, if you were to take a bird's eye view and, and look back and point at maybe two or three things you've done and just say, like, I, you know, I did all right. I did okay. <laughs> uh, in 30 seconds. Well, okay. <laughs> in, 30, in 30, no, 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 in 30 seconds or less. So I've, I've thought about this uh, and actually took a seminar that focused on a lot of, you know, Absolute stuff like Aristotle and you know the, the Stoics and whatnot, right. but trying to define the good life. What does that mean? And uh, I think for me, uh, it would come down to, and this is going to sound cheesy, but it's hard not to sound cheesy when you're trying to give an overarching answer to this. But I would say to to have loved, been loved, and to have never stopped learning. I think if I check those three boxes, especially the first and the third, then things will turn out just fine. And uh, it, it's the order is important. The loving, the act of, um, of, of loving others and sort of wrapping gratitude into that and all the layers that that includes, uh, I, I think radiates outward and, and topples a lot of dominoes that satisfy a lot of needs. Um, and ultimately enhances performance and all things in the achievement bucket. So, yeah, to love, be loved, and never stop learning. And then in terms of three things I've done, man, hopefully the next three things I do, I suppose. But <laughs> uh, I want to convince people that to get superhuman results, all you need is a better set of questions and a better, a better toolkit. And I've just seen hundreds and thousands of examples now where, for instance, the four-hour body comes out and people are like, oh my God, that stuff's crazy. That's insane. Like, I can't do that. Only you know, That's Tim Ferriss. That's why he can do it. And every in every single chapter, whether it's the you know breath-holding, vertical jump, ultra-endurance, fat loss, muscle gain, any of that stuff, uh, I have reader examples that have far outstripped what I've done. And that is my goal. My goal is to hopefully, you know, by the time I leave this planet, create thousands or tens of thousands uh, or more of uh, master world-class learners who in turn can be teachers and pass that skill set and disseminate that to more and more people. I think that's how you get, uh, I think that's how you get problem solvers and innovators who can really solve and create some interesting things. So that's, that's what I'm aiming for, you know, one, uh, one book and, and TV show at a time. I love it. I wish you all the best, Tim, and the thanks. I hope I hope educators That's listen to your message just as much as um, business leaders do. So, me too. Me too, man. So we'll uh, we'll we'll grab some wine or something and jam on that uh, when we when we meet in person. That would be fun. I'd love that. All the best to you. Thanks for listening to the Psychology Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard. I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Also, please add a rating and review of the podcast on iTunes. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the podcast, and tune in next season for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp.
It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 